Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you today uh, here at St. Thomas Anglican Church. And I know that we have some folks that are new to the Anglican Church. And one of the things that you don't see on a week-to-week basis is the fact that all the clergy here um, are under authority. Uh, We serve under a bishop. Our bishop right now is Archbishop uh, Foley Beach. And when each one of us were ordained, there's a really scary part of the service. We have to take what's called an oath of canonical obedience. Uh, We say it, we sign it. um, It's in the presence of God and the church. Um, Here's what it says. I do promise here in the presence of Almighty God and of the church that I will pay true and canonical obedience and all things lawful and honest to the bishop and his successors, uh, so help me God. And so in other words, we say that we're going to listen to what the bishop says. We're going to do what the bishop says, but there is a caveat. As long as what he asks of us uh, is lawful and honest. Um, And thankfully, I've been under good, godly bishops, and so the things that they ask us to do um, are good. But, you know, I've worked in scenarios that are really difficult. When I was in seminary, I worked for an insurance company in their claims department. And the things that our uh, folks ask us to do just teetered on the edge of morality and legality. Maybe you've had a similar experience um, in work. And um, I always wonder, man, what would I do if the bishop asked me to do something that I thought um, was not lawful or not right? I mean, this is someone in authority who I trust, and I trust that they have my best interest in mind. I mean, worse yet, what if I thought God was calling me to do something like that? I mean, what happens when we don't understand God's call um, on our life? Or where maybe we hear God's call, we say, man, if we do that, it's going to be very costly. It's going to take an obedience and a level of faith um, that's new for me. And what happens if God calls us to do something, and if we were to do it, the only thing we would get is God himself. And it might cost us other things um, that we see as, as good things in our lives. Well, that's what happens here in Genesis chapter 22. We are going to look at this pretty tricky passage with Abraham and his son Isaac. Um, And I want to just submit, this is, when I think about Abraham's story, uh, this is more or less a final exam, a final test of his faith. You see, we enter here the end of Abraham's story. Maybe you're familiar with it. Um, But the story starts with just this you know, pagan nomad in Mesopotamia, and the Lord calls him and says, hey, I'd like you to go. I'm not going to tell you where, but I'd like you to go. And Abraham does. And God has this plan through his calling, uh, through his promise, through his covenant, that through Abraham, you will see incredible fruitfulness. Um, such that it will eventually bless all of the nations of the world. 
And that's the start of Abraham's story. And Abraham has a strong start. Um, and here we come to kind of the end of Abraham's story. And it's interesting because you might think, uh, well, he responded well at first. If you know anything of his story, it was pretty checkered uh, in between. Well, what's going to happen here? Is he just going to coast to the end? Um, what's going on with Abraham? And um, I just want to say a few things before we dig into this passage. Um, first, last week we looked at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by Satan. And one of the things we said about that incident is that there's a lot of things we can learn, but it is also a very unique incident. Um, that's similar here. There's a lot of things we can take away, but this is a very unique incident and a unique thing that's going on as God tests um, Abraham. Um, secondly, I'm just struck by where Abraham is in his journey. His bookends actually are really nice. He starts well, he ends well, but everywhere in between, he is a mess. Um, and I just want to, I've, I've noticed um, whether it was the church I served in Texas or the church I served here, it's interesting because you'll have older, seasoned Christians um, who, who find our congregation, and maybe they're in retirement, and they're expecting, okay, this is going to be this nice coasting, and all of a sudden, God is doing something new in their lives. He's challenging them and teaching them in unique ways, and I just want to say that's what we see in the example of Abraham. Um, and so if you are seasoned, if you walk with the Lord a long time, if you go, I know I had a good start, but it's been a little wonky in between, know that God has things for you. He has ways to, to train and challenge um, and to bless you and things to teach you um, even now. Because um, God has this test for Abraham. It, it's a little, it's a final exam of faith because He's going to ask Abraham um, to give up what God had miraculously blessed him with earlier, Isaac. Remember, Isaac is not just a normal kid. Isaac is the child of promise. Isaac is the child that Abraham and Sarah thought they would never have and were way past the point of having when Isaac comes. He was a gift from God, a miracle um, to Abraham in his old age and in Sarah in her old age. And I think the crux of this test is where does Abraham's love ultimately lay? Does he love Isaac more or God more? Does he love the gifts of God and the provision and blessing of God or uh, God himself? And so this test comes um, it's actually mind-boggling. It's hard to read this test, this call uh, from the Lord. If we're honest, it, it makes us ask questions. It makes us squirm. I've noticed in, in both of our services, when the reader comes up and reads Genesis 22, first of all, there's a weightiness to this story. But they end and they say, the word of the Lord and the congregation is like, thanks be to God. <laughs> Versus Romans 8. <laughs> Let's talk about the love. Oh, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. 
No, this is a passage we struggle with and we should. Um, it's, it's a passage that brings up questions for us. Uh, some of you know Larry King, who was on CNN for a long time. He was once asked about uh, his faith, or really his lack of faith. And Larry King pointed to two different things that caused him to really be kind of an agnostic at this point in his life. Um, he said, first, his dad died when he was a young child. Um, and, you know, if you're going to have questions about the Lord, death and loss, that's a valid question. That's a valid place to go. I don't know about this. But then he said the second thing is when he started reading the Old Testament, he didn't like the things that God did. He didn't like this. Abraham, sacrifice your son. Larry King said that always bothered me as a kid. I remember thinking, why would he do that? I mean, as a test, that seems like a prank. Then he just said, I said to myself, I don't know. And he's never resolved that question for himself. Uh, Bruce Waltke is an Old Testament scholar. He's an Anglican priest. He says that this is one of the most theologically difficult texts of the Old Testament. He says God's command did not actually contradict moral law because the firstborn always belongs to the Lord. He references Exodus 13. However, this command is extraordinary, morally, theologically. Some of you have probably read Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher and theologian. Um, he wrestles with this text, and he finds that God's command is illogical and absurd. It's teetering on the edge. What do we do with a text like this? Well, a few things. First, I would say um, we're told right from the bat God is testing Abraham. And as I read through the scriptures, there's a difference between testing and temptation. Testing always comes from the Lord, and even if it's difficult, it's ultimately for our benefit and for our good. God uses testing uh, to refine us and shape us and to mold us into the image um, of his son. That comes from the Lord. Temptation usually comes either from Satan, like we looked at last week, or from our sin, our flesh, the world. Um, and it's not for our good. It's not something designed um, to make things go well. Um, and so I think the Genesis, the author here tells us right away, after these things, God tested Abraham. This is different than the temptation. This is a test uh, for Abraham. Um, I think of James chapter 1. Verse 13, James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. There's a difference between testing and temptation. And I think the reason this is so important is it tells us what's really at stake here. This isn't to lessen the awkwardness. But what's being tested is not whether or not Isaac will live. It's a sifting of Abraham's faith. That's what's being tested. Our ultimate question is what's going to happen with Abraham's faith as we look through uh, this passage? That's the suspense. That's the, that's the question. And the other thing I note here is, um, man, it's weird. Like culturally, this seems really different to us. Um, I mean, it, at its root, Genesis 22 
um, invokes and is maybe about human sacrifice, which was incredibly common in the ancient world. That's how you satisfy deities. Um, but it's unfathomable to us. Um, I, I heard a sermon from Dr. Tim Keller about this passage, and he just talks about how disturbing it was when he read Genesis for the first time. Like there's all these things that we know are culturally bad. Human sacrifice, polygamy, you know, these kinds of things. And he was like, how is this in the Bible? This is God's word? And so as, he, as he sat with it for a while, he eventually realized um, the Bible is not supporting these things. It's subverting them. In fact, this is one of the stories. If you, you know, if you, whoa, human sacrifice. Well, what is God doing? He's going to teach Abraham, I am not like those other gods by the end of this test. It subverts what seems uh, normal. And the other interesting thing that Dr. Keller kind of picked up on is he says it hit him. What if when he was younger, and he had seen things in the scripture he didn't understand and didn't like. He had just abandoned his trust in the scriptures. But what if he had just drop-kicked the faith entirely? Missed out on a relationship with Christ because he couldn't understand the behavior of the patriarchs and the culture there. Um, he said the lesson is not to dismiss difficulty, but to be patient with the text. Sometimes consider the possibility it might not be teaching what you think it's teaching. Some of these take humility and effort and work. And we need the Holy Spirit to show us what we have to learn from those passages. And so um, let's look at this test itself. Abraham's test, verse 3, um, says, So Abraham rose early in the morning. I like that part because... <laughs> Um, Abraham's going to obey immediately. There's an emphasis. He rises early in the morning. I don't know about you. When I don't want to do something, I suddenly find the sleep button <laughs> over and over and over. But that's not what Abraham does. He gets right up. So he saddles his donkey. He took two of his young men with him. He grabbed his son Isaac. He cut the wood. He's getting things ready uh, to do what God has asked him to do. Sometimes I do wish we had a little bit of, uh, a little more information about what was Abraham thinking and feeling? What was Isaac thinking and feeling? Like what kind of lasting effect did this have um, on Isaac? We're not even told how old Isaac is. The only thing we know is he's at least old enough that it makes sense for him to carry all the wood up the hill. I imagine him to be a teenager. Um, again, we're not told that. That's how I kind of think about it. Um, we aren't given a window into their thoughts or emotions. But, I mean, we can fill in some of the gaps, right? We can prayerfully use our imagination. I mean, the suspense, uh, the agony, the, the mix of trust and confusion. I mean, when they reach their destination, Abraham grabs the fire and the knife. He lays the wood on his son's back to ascend the mountain. He tells his servants, hey, we're going to go worship and then come back. Which folks have debated, is that like a white lie or evidence of faith? Isaac, he's at least old enough to know how worship works. 
So he looks at the wood, he looks at the fire, and verse 7, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? It's a good question. He knows how these things work. And Abraham's reply is, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And what I think is um, intriguing and compelling is that although Abraham doesn't know how this will work itself out, he's holding on to two seemingly contradictory things from the Lord. His trust in the Lord's goodness and faithfulness over the years and the unmistakable call God has for him. He holds those and somehow he trusts that they're going to come back from worship. That the Lord will work it out. The book of Hebrews has this fascinating suggestion. It's a hard suggestion, but it's fascinating. It suggests that Abraham had faith that he was considering that even if this happens and he does what the Lord has asked, that God could bring his son back to life. He knew God to be the God of new life and resurrection. Um, I'm sure he didn't want to go through with it, but he had somehow a way to hold these together, God's goodness and his call and how it would ultimately be for their good and for their flourishing. He knew in the words of Romans 8 that nothing could separate us from the love of God, not life or death. And so then the pace slows down as they go up the mountain. What will happen? What's Abraham going to do? How will Isaac respond? What about when Isaac figures out what's happening? <laughs> when will the Lord intervene and let him know this was a test? I mean, we know it's a test. They don't. In the moment, they are, they are walking this out step by step. And so uh, they go up and they build this altar on Mount Moriah, later the, the Temple Mount itself. He binds his son. He lays him on the wood. Um, you've got to imagine Isaac's like, what the heck? I mean, he's led like a lamb to the slaughter. I can't imagine that Abraham's not weeping. He's shaking. And he has this knife. And it's coming towards his beloved son. And we want to stop reading. Stop listening. Look away. Have something intervene. This isn't a nice Sunday school story, is it? It's not a parable about uh, God's love. It doesn't fit on a bumper sticker. This is gut-wrenching and excruciating testing. It's costly sacrifice, potentially. It's faithful obedience. It's this man, Abraham, after a lifetime of both faith and doubt, fully and finally trusting the Lord. In the midst of his confusion, thinking somehow the Lord will bring this to pass in a way that is good. And then eventually, mercifully, the whistle blows, the music stops, the angel appears, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy. Or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, 
Um, your only son from me. Abraham passes this test, this final exam of his faith. And he looks up, and his eyes have got to be burning from tears, and he sees a ram caught in the thicket. And he realizes God wasn't going to require his son. The Lord provided. God provided a, a, a substitute for the sacrifice that would lead to new life for Isaac. And so Abraham names the place Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. He marks it as the Lord will provide, as a lesson about how God has and will and will always provide. And they come back down the mountain just like they said they would and meet the servants. And it seems like the story is over. But it's not. There's an old uh, leadership maxim. um, Don't ask anyone to do anything that you wouldn't do yourself. If you're asking how in the world God could put this test in front of Abraham, well, that's how. Don't ask anyone to do anything you wouldn't do uh, yourself. For Abraham, of course, when he got to his moment of testing, there was a lamb to swap for his son. But God, our Father, will come to a similar moment, a similar excruciating test. Up until this point, Genesis has seemed like a tale of two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. But from here we see the real tale, the two sons are Isaac and the Lord Jesus. And when the time came that there's not a lamb to swap for the son, The son was the lamb. That's what John told us. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was crystal clear in Mark 8, the reading deacon text read for us. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and after three days rise again. Which puts the disciples to the test. They're dismayed. They're like, how can this be? And I think actually that reality stands for as a test for each of us. I mean, do we see there on the cross the Son, the Lamb, as Jehovah Jireh? God will provide. God has provided. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, we see, we have the grace to see in his death and resurrection, the love of God in the face of Jesus Christ, our Lord, his son. That it takes away all of our sins. That it takes away the sins of the world. That it should lead to adoration and worship. I imagine Abraham worshiped once the Lord provided and was grateful to do so. And when we face our own difficulties and tests and hardships, I mean, you and I, this has been a tough week in our community. There have been hardships. There have been hard things. How do we trust in the goodness of God in the light of hard things? Do we know him as Jehovah Jireh, the God who has provided, who is providing, and will provide? Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Think about the parallels. And like Isaac, Christ was led. He doesn't open his mouth. Isaac carries his wood up, up, the, up the mountain. Well, Jesus carries his own cross up a mountain, pretty close to here, Golgotha. Isaac is, is bound by his father. He, he, he's listening to and doing what his father asks of him, even though it doesn't make sense. It may not be what he chooses. And we see the same um, in our Lord. The only difference is this time there is no merciful angel to stop it. No, this time there wasn't a lamb caught in a thicket of thorns to swap for the sun. The sun was the lamb. And the thicket he wears as a crown for you and for me. And so we have this image, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it should call us to adoration and worship. It should call us to gratitude. And it actually exerts a call on each one of us. We wonder, what is God calling us to do? Where is he calling us to go? What are the things we don't want to let go of in our lives? What do we put ahead of God, even good things? Abraham's test was about his priority. Would he put Isaac first or would he put God above everything? And then when you think about Isaac, putting the wood on his back um, in the midst of his confusion and doubt, and we hear the Lord's call in Mark 8, take up your cross and follow me. In the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.